This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for August 18th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, what killed off North America's megafauna? We're talking dire wolves and saber-toothed cats. Online news editor Mike Price joins me to talk about the likely villains and their demise. Climate, humans, or a new contender, fire. He also shares a bit about his visit to the La Brea tar pits, where researchers are trying to figure this out. Next up, do languages get less complex when spoken in multilingual settings? Researcher Olena Sherbakova is here with a broad look at how the mix of languages and social groups in a society could affect the overall complexity of language. And in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, associate editor of custom publishing, Jackie Oberst, talks with Trina Bartoldi, chief innovation officer at the Bioinnovation Institute about how far women's health research and funding has come and how much further it still needs to go. Okay, so one question is, where are all the megafauna around here? You know, I'm in the middle of the United States and we got nothing. We got foxes and, you know, squirrels. But 13,000 years ago, this place was teeming with mastodons, giant sloths, something called yesterday's camels, which I just learned about. But their loss is actually a mystery. And it doesn't help that at that time, in the time of their decline, a lot of other things are going on that are hard to pull apart, like humans colonizing the continent and big shifts at the global level in climate. And as we know, humans and climate are both notorious pruners of the tree of life, cutting branches off here and there. So the question is, uh, which thing did away with the saber-toothed cats and dire wolves? This Week in Science online editor Mike Price wrote a story about a new contender for the destroyer of North America's megafauna, fire. And the evidence for this comes from the La Brea Tar Pits in California. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. This is a very exciting story. It has everything, saber-toothed tigers, pits of tar, fire. It's all the hits in one. Yeah. So you actually got to visit the tar pits and I've never been there and I definitely haven't heard much about the science side of that site. I think more of it as like a place, unfortunately for me, from Looney Tunes. <laughs> like more than anything else. It's a really fascinating place because it's in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. You're surrounded by high rises and you step into this urban park and 
you are right on top of one of the most fossiliferous sites in the world. Yeah. So what was it like going behind the scenes? And, you know, what kind of research were people doing there? You know, the scene in Indiana Jones where you walk in and there's just uh, every single artifact that ever was discovered in in endless hallways of of some nondescript building. That's kind of what it's like. Just an Amazon warehouse of fossils. Yeah, exactly. The, the, The hallways go on forever. There are thousands upon thousands of these drawers. And every time you pull out a drawer, each drawer is full of bones that have been pulled from the tar pits. And I was talking to someone who who works there, not not an author on the paper, but uh, he was saying just with what researchers have excavated and pulled out of the ground and is waiting to be removed from from the tar. And so it takes forever to get through even just a, a couple inches of this stuff. And just with what they have above ground right now, he was telling me that it would take all the scientists working there right now, multiple lifetimes to, to get through it. And that's a tiny fraction of, of what's actually buried beneath the ground itself. So amazing. It's just an extraordinary site. OK, so you visited the pits. You wanted to talk to these researchers who have this paper coming out that looks at this very specific time where megafauna were going away climate changes were happening, and humans were hanging around. Lining up all of these dates is pretty difficult. And surprisingly, it's not easy to date stuff from the tar pits. Can you talk about why that is? Usually when you have uh, radiometric dating or radiocarbon dating, what you're doing is you are counting how much carbon-14 is left in a piece of tissue, say a bone. During life, you're constantly taking in carbon from the environment. After you die, the carbon-14 that is inside of you starts to slowly break down at a pretty predictable rate into other isotopes of carbon. And so by comparing how much carbon-14 you have left in some tissue to the other flavors of carbon that now exist, you can pretty reliably, within a few decades, date uh, how long ago that animal died. The challenge at Librea Tarpets is everything is also covered in asphalt. And asphalt is a type of hydrocarbon, so it's a combination of hydrogen and carbon. And the carbon from the asphalt is just impossibly old. It's formed millions of years ago, and it's just it's it's really old. If you get some of that carbon and it's all over everything. And it's all over everything, it's everywhere, it's it's yeah. super sticky. And if you don't remove all of it, if you don't get rid of all of it, some of that carbon will get into your sample that you're dating and it's going to completely throw off your results because your carbon-14 has is, is long been gone from the tar. This is kind of one of the big steps with the paper that you're reporting on here is that they came up with a way of cleaning things and dating things such that it's accurate and it's reliable information from the tar pits. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they they worked with some researchers from the University of California, Irvine nearby, and uh, they developed this method for very painstakingly getting all of the asphalt off. At the, the end result is pure collagen. And so pure collagen is the stuff from the bone that will hold all the, the carbon-14 and will allow you to get an accurate dating of the bone itself and not the asphalt, the ancient, ancient asphalt. Were they able to then say something about the decline of megafauna and better pin down when it's likely to have happened? 
they dated 169 new fossils and added them to four existing fossils. Four. Four, yeah. <laughs> four that, that had previously been dated. <laughs> and so when they looked at the radiocarbon results from the eight most common large mammals from the pit that they excavated, they found that the sloths and the camels, the yesterday's camels that you mentioned, they started disappearing around 13,600 years ago. And then about 400 years later, you see all the rest of the animals start dropping off. You see fewer and fewer of them and then until you finally hit a time horizon and they're just completely gone. All of the other animals disappear by around 12,900 years ago, with the exception of the coyote, which is still with us today. Going strong, actually. <laughs> okay, so this is a more precise date for the disappearance, at least according to the tar pits. But one of the important things to do that these researchers want to do is line up this megafauna disappearance with other things going on on the continent, which includes people moving here and global climate change. Let's take climate first. Can you situate us in these icy periods and warmer periods that kind of were rolling across the planet? Where does the megafauna extinction fit in that? When these animals were, were thriving on the continent, it was mostly during a period called the Pleistocene, which started about 2.5 million years ago. And we think of as a, a series of long ice ages. There was occasional blips of warming up here and there, but for the most part, this is the ice age. Things were cold. There were glaciers among a lot of the northern latitudes. And a lot of these animals were adapted to live in that kind of harsh, cold environment. And so things were trucking along in the ice ages, cold and frigid, until about 14,000 years ago when we have the onset of a period called the Bowling Alarod. And during the Bowling Alarod, you see temperatures spike. They get up to temperatures similar to what we see today, so much, much warmer than the ice ages. They go down a little bit over time, but for the most part, it's much warmer and much drier than anything that these animals on the continent would have seen over the past million years or so. Mm -hmm. We've had this warm up. What happens next for the climate? The bowling alarod lasts for about 1,800 years. And then you see uh, another shift called the Younger Dryas, which is a return to ice age conditions. And things get much colder again. There's a, a huge cold snap. And then after that, you see temperatures rise again, and then we enter the period known as the Holocene, which is our, our current epoch, and temperatures get up to similar to what you see today. Yeah. So the Younger Dryas, how does that correlate with what we know about the decline in megafauna? Do we have any data there? All we really know is that by the end of the Younger Dryas, uh, most of the megafauna is gone. But the big question for decades in this field has been what combination of climatic factors may have influenced the decline of these animals, or was it something else? Like people. Like people. Who had, who had started colonizing the continent, and I won't say when. Because no one knows <laughs> is, is, the, is the, uh, the, the right answer to that question. But the date has been getting earlier and earlier, even just in my time at science over like the past 10 years. So yeah, when is the earliest people got here? We're pretty confident that by around 16,000 years ago, there were people living in North America. There's a, several sites that can attest to this. Some of the even older proposed dates include things like 20, 21,000 years ago. Those come from some footprints from the White Sands, New Mexico site. Some people believe those. Other people can test it. But we're pretty confident that by at least 16,000 years ago, there were people living on the landscape. Let's see. That's 
before the bullard. Yep, that's before the bowling all rod, exactly. <laughs> and um, also before the younger Dryas and before the disappearance of the megafauna. Exactly. So it's not like people showed up, bing, you lose all the megafauna. Exactly. So one idea would be that humans hunted these animals to extinction. Is there strong evidence for this happening? Largely, you don't see a lot of hunting evidence of these large megafauna, with the exception of, of mammoths and mastodons. Much later in history, you don't see the, the proverbial spearhead in you know, a chunk of bone that would indicate this was a, a kill site. Those are pretty rare in the archaeological record. There's been debate about whether or not that's just because it would be hard to find something like that. They might have been common, but you just don't see it in the archaeological record. Or it's possible that hunting intensity just wasn't that big of a factor. And so maybe there were some other things going on. Right. The dates are okay. You can say people were there, people might have hunted, but you don't have this overwhelming evidence that humans destroyed all the megafauna. Exactly. And the last piece that we need to bring in here is fire. Right. How is fire implicated in any of this? When the researchers saw the dates for their megafaunal die-off at Liberia Tar Pits, because things died so suddenly and because it happened to coincide with the onset of the, the bowling allerod so perfectly, they wondered, well, is there something going on in the environment that this might be tied to? One of the researchers on the project, Reagan Dunn, is a paleobotanist. She specializes in ancient pollens and, and things like that. She went to the sediment core record from a lake called Lake Elsinore here in Southern California. I say here because I'm in San Diego. A core sample had been taken from the bottom of this lake many years ago. And within the sediment core layers that correspond to this time period that we're looking at, so we're looking at around between 14,000 and 10,000 years ago, she saw a changeover in, in the pollen from the lake sediment. And what you see is there's before 14,000 years ago, the landscape of Southern California looks very different than it does today. Back then, it was a woodland environment. It was covered in juniper and oak trees everywhere. It would have been largely forested. Then around 13,000 years ago, there's this fairly sudden shift to new and different kinds of pollen that is more grasslands. You see a lot more grasses. You see other plants that are fire adapted. And so that indicates that there was this, it's called a state shift. Things had gone from a woodland environment in Southern California to what we would recognize today as the modern chaparral ecosystem. And so that got them thinking, well, what could have caused that? And when you look at the types of plants that these oaks and junipers were replaced by, as I said, they're, they were replaced largely by fire adapted plants or plants that thrive in conditions where there are frequent fires. And so they wondered, is fire responsible here? Did fires cause this changeover in the ecosystem? Were there any clues that fires were happening besides the shift in the plants? That's what they wanted to find out. And they didn't really know exactly how to ask this question. But as they were thinking about it, one of the researchers came across a master's thesis that was written by a graduate student at UCLA, Lisa Martinez. And what she had been doing is looking at charcoal sediment from the exact same lake core that Reagan Dunn had been looking at, but she was looking at little tiny flecks of, of charcoal from the sediment that would indicate changes in the fire regime over time. And they teamed up with Lisa and brought her in as an author on the paper. 
And what they found is at the exact same time this pollen shift is happening from woodland plants to chaparral plants, you see this 30-fold increase in the amount of charcoal that's in the sediment. And what that indicates is that there was just a lot of soot in the air. And the thing that causes a lot of soot to be in the air is wildfires. Yeah. Wow. So these are kind of three different pieces of evidence that are overlapping in this time period. The loss of the megafauna, the change in the pollen and the plants living around there, and then these fires. Are we still keeping people in the loop here? Are people still somehow a contender for the destruction of megafauna? Maybe inadvertently. Yeah. Once once you know that there are these massive fires burning on the landscape, the natural question to ask is, well, why? What's What's causing all these fires? I mean, we have drier and hotter conditions, which set the groundwork for fires, but you still need a spark. One of the, the things that people know is wherever people go, uh, fires follow. And the people that were living in North America at this time period would have had fire technology. They would have used it for campfires. They may have used it for various kinds of ecosystem services. Various cultures use fire for for hunting. They'll use it to drive prey in certain directions. Sometimes they'll light fields on fire and collect the grasshoppers that try to flee. There's any number of reasons that people would have been using fire in the landscape and probably were. They put all of this together and they said, well, there were definitely people here living here. You have this changing environmental climate condition that would have made fires much more likely to burn out of control. And you see this shift in fire regime and then the die-off of megafauna that happens all around the same time, they put it all together and they came up with their grand hypothesis, which is that people had been living on the landscape for thousands of years and hadn't been having a large impact on the ecosystem. The animals were were thriving. The ecosystem was, was mostly unchanged at the plant level. But then something happens. The climate changes. Things get warmer and drier. And then they're fires become more likely to explode, to become wildfires, to get out of control. And their hypothesis is that people here, all of a sudden, the fires that they were setting became much more dangerous and much more wild. That didn't burn all the mastodons up. No, It no. deprived them of their food, right? It deprived them of their ecosystem that they were, they were adapted to. It probably burned some. I mean, you can look at the wildfires that happened in Australia a few years ago. Oh, yeah. You had 3 billion animals that were killed or displaced uh, in these wildfires, and it didn't help. I mean, it, it probably did directly burn a fair number of animals, but you're right. The larger impact was most likely to the habitat. So I like this theory because it's basically everything. All of those things could contribute and, and get you this result, which which is very tidy. But this is a limited sample. Like this is one spot in California and it's even one pit, I think. So what else can be done to kind of shore this up or what could happen that would disprove that this this is what happened in the past? It's important to point out that while the radiocarbon dates for the animals are a pretty sure thing and you can directly point to the charcoal and the pollen evidence as direct evidence that fires were happening on the landscape. There's nothing in the paper that directly pins the fire starting on humans in the landscape. And so that's something that several people that I talked to pointed out. Many scientists were persuaded by the evidence and, and agree that that's a likely possibility. But there were others who point out that there's nothing really implicating humans. Lightning starts fire all the time. Yeah. We don't know what the lightning pattern would have been like at this time period, whether or not dry lightning was more impactful then than it is today. Right now on the landscape, 
lightning lit fires in Southern California are are responsible for a relatively small number of fires in the landscape. Almost all wildfires in the Western U.S. are today caused by human activity. And whether or not that is the same as 13,000 years ago, it's difficult to say. But the other scientist I talked to who disagree with pinning this on humans so decidedly. Yeah, that makes sense. So one last question, actually, I wanted to ask you, since you're in California, we've seen a lot of fires in California, a lot of shifting weather. You know, do you feel like there are some lessons to be learned about what happened way back when the megafauna were going extinct for what's happening today? Yeah, the authors certainly think so. They point out in their paper, and then they all have told me is that they're afraid that the same conditions, more or less similar conditions that led to the state shift at the end of the Pleistocene 13,000 years ago are repeating themselves today. So you have a warming and drying climate. You have larger populations of people living in the landscape. You have more fires that are occurring. And this is the same recipe that, according to these authors, led to the decline of the megafauna and a general state shift in the ecosystem. So some of them are, are worried that, that we're heading towards uh, something similar. We don't know exactly what the end result would be, but if there's a similar state shift, you know, it could be a bad time for, for the people that are living here and animals, too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. You're welcome, Sarah. Mike Price is an online news editor for science. You can read his feature story and the related paper at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Elena Sherbakova, where we tackle what exactly makes a language complex. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than science careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Now we have Olena Sherbakova. She and her colleagues wrote in Science Advances this week about how languages develop in societies of strangers versus societies of intimates. Hi, Elena. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, thank you for the invitation. Sure. You know, so I started with this because the idea of societies of strangers, it just really drew me into this article. It just sounds so, it's very evocative. So can you explain what this term means on the technical side of things? So societies of strangers refers to the communities that are large, that have substantial proportions of outsiders or strangers. In our context, it would be the non-native speakers of a particular language. And what about this opposite term, uh, society of intimates? Yes, and the societies of intimates would be the other extreme. So this would be very small, homogenous communities that have little to no contact with outsiders. So going into this, into this work, the idea was that having non-native speakers around the society of strangers would cause changes to the local language. 
perhaps simplifying it. Where did that evidence come from? Why did people think that that might be the case? There are indeed many different proposals that suggest that if a language is spoken by many non-native speakers, its grammars should be simplifying over time. And the rationale behind it is that a lot of non-native speakers will simply be struggling acquiring all the intricacies of grammars, as many of us can relate to, of course. And over time, if many such members of the communities are outsiders and they're learning a new language and they emit many grammatical distinctions, for instance, in the long run, it will become more and more acceptable to omit these distinctions for other members of the communities. And eventually, the future generations of this language, they will acquire it, feeling that it's totally legitimate not to use these distinctions at all. Yeah. And I think in the paper you talk about, I think in some cases, they use like gender and all different forms of words, which I thought was really interesting because English doesn't really have a lot of gender in the language, but a lot of other languages definitely do. Yes, and that's a good point because English actually used to have a more prominent gender system. For instance, the adjectives would need to agree with their nouns in gender, but also in case and number as well. So this changed over time and many inflections, they were lost too. And the case systems in English, they were lost too. English is an excellent example because it's frequently cited as an example of a language that illustrates how strangers or how non-native speakers could lead to the simplification of a language because all those changes, uh, like the loss of inflections or case systems or nouns, they all happened after Norman conquest. And this is precisely the period when the locals would be in contact with the speakers of Norman French and later also uh, with the speakers of Latin, Celtic languages and Old Norse. I have to just say, as an aside here, English is so not simple. I can't believe it was more complicated in the past. <laughs> yes, yes. But that's very interesting. As someone who's tried to learn multiple languages, the idea of adjectives having a gender was definitely something I had to, to really think through piece by piece as I was learning other languages. But it's so interesting that it fell out of use in English. So I could have had to have learned this when I was little, but I did not. So can you give us another example of, you know, some of the evidence that's been used to support this idea? One famous case is that of Icelandic. Icelandic is really different from its close relatives, such as Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish. And what makes it different is that it has preserved the more intricate case system on the nouns as opposed to its relatives, and it still uses uh, different verb forms that agree with the subjects of the sentences. And this has been attributed to its geographical isolation, but also less contact with other speech communities, as opposed to these other languages that were on continental Europe and, and they were surrounded by more speakers of other languages. Very interesting. We're talking about, you know, there's some evidence, you know, looking at English, looking at other places in the world where you see this change in language that is tending to simplify when it's in a society of strangers, but it hasn't really been done in a very systematic way. A study of this has not been done. And that's, that's where your work comes in today. Yes, exactly. So one of the advantages of our study is that we managed to measure complexity on a really large number of languages 
over 1,300 languages. And another point is that we made sure that we used languages with very good feature coverage. So we used the Grambank database that covers almost 200 grammatical features for over 2,000 of languages. And we made sure that we calculated the scores only for those languages for which we had the majority of these relevant features. So you had a really big sample with a lot of different dimensions of data. How did you categorize these languages as being on the more insular side versus side by side with other languages, you know, these Society of Strangers languages? So we used the available resources to get the information on the population size in general. So how many native speakers a particular language has. Also, importantly, the proportions of non-native speakers, as well as the number of neighbors to see whether the contact with more languages would lead to a simplification and also the data on the language status. How would you define complexity for a language? Saying a language is complex, it feels a little judgmental (laughs) (laughs) because... I do think English is complicated. I do think Russian is complicated, but I don't know how it would fall in the system that you used here to describe these languages. Thank you for this question. This is indeed a very tricky one because it's, of course, a challenge to measure and to define complexity because there is no agreed upon definition of what it is. And there are different perspectives on it, whether it's about the number of distinctions or whether it's about the amount of irregularity in a language or something else. And it's not surprising that it feels a bit judgmental (laughs) uh, simply because there is a very long tradition of classifying languages, unfortunately, into complex and sophisticated and simple or primitive. And this is unfortunately part of the long tradition. So... In our study, we, of course, limit ourselves to complexity as the notion that relates to the grammatical system and it has nothing to do with our judgments. So lots of rules means lots of complexity. Exactly. You know, it's hard for me to separate complexity of language the way you're defining it and how hard it is to learn (laughs) coming from the language that I speak. Some approaches suggest measuring complexity just as a complexity of the system, whereas other approaches actually suggest to do what you were hinting at and looking at it from the perspective of the language learner, for instance, or from a perspective of first language speaker. And this is a very tricky task to do it that way, simply because much more research is needed to understand what exactly is complex and difficult for all these different language user groups. Yeah, that makes sense. Just speaking of language learners, like people complain a lot about learning English. And like, I have a kid and having her learn every exception is so hard. The grammar is already done. She's (laughs) already got the grammar just from talking, but the spelling and the exceptions to all the rules are just like never ending. And then, you know, my partner speaks Chinese and it's so Every time he teaches me a word, he's like, that's not right. You're not saying it right. Like the production is the difficult part. And so, yeah. you know, it just I, I'm just very caught up in it, not complaining, just saying it's just such a there's a lot to think about when we think about other languages, complexity of languages, how much is in reference to our own, how much is in reference to the learning process. And yeah, it's a super fascinating project. 
Yeah, thank you. And that's true about English. As a non-native speaker, I can definitely agree that it was a long and tough process of mastering it and becoming proficient, even though I still understand that I do not speak it perfectly, unfortunately. But when we learn other languages, we can see that they might be different from English in many different respects. And for instance, if someone is trying to acquire a language with genders or where the articles are not the same like in English, such as Italian or French or German, of course, from a learner of these languages, a lot more efforts are required to memorize these parts of grammar. So typologically, there are many languages that surpass English in its complexity. I was going to say, are we the bottom of the barrel? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And many linguists would actually suggest that English is one of the languages that are least complex. I'll take it. All right. Now I'm going to throw one more (laughs) question before we get to results. So did you have to kind of look through time at the history of exposure to other languages or languages being spoken side by side? Was the history important for this research? So we didn't really take the diachronic data. So we didn't look at each language and how much complexity it had in all the possible periods of time or how exactly it changed in terms of being society of strangers. But what we did do, we used the phylogenetic methods that allowed us to incorporate the expected similarities between languages based on how closely they are related. So like ancestry of languages, basically, like a a tree of languages to say. Exactly. How divergent are we getting and what might be changing things faster or slower? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about your result. What did you find when you were able to look across so many languages and so many dimensions of complexity? Did you see this effect that you were looking for? Yeah. So surprisingly, Contrary to many previous studies, we didn't find any evidence for societies of strangers speaking less complex languages. So this was, of course, a bit puzzling since it's the opposite result from what we would expect given the prior literature. But we uh, spent a lot of time thinking about what could be the, the reason behind it. One part of it is that we indeed have a much larger sample We made sure that there would be this good feature coverage or data coverage. And our models also incorporated this expected similarities between languages based on ancestry, as I mentioned before, but also based on the close geographical proximity. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because we would expect that Spanish would be more similar to Italian because they are more closely related, as opposed to Spanish being more similar to Danish. Again, because of relatedness, but also because these two languages are just more wide apart. Did you see any hints in the number crunching that you did with this data of what might influence the simplicity or complexity of grammar? Was there anything else that tended to link there? We also uncovered that this feature, this variable grammatical complexity, is distributed around the world in a way that closely related languages resemble each other in their scores of grammatical complexity. 
What do you think now that you have this more systematic approach that's showing there isn't this strong effect of society of strangers on the complexity of language? What do you want to know next? What would you ask or do research further into? First of all, it showed us that it's important to use large-scale data to revisit long-standing questions and received wisdoms. And also, the next step would be looking at individual features, of course, because what we did was assembling these scores of grammatical complexity in general, but some studies, for instance, they look specifically at certain grammatical features, such as case or the number of distinctions that verbs make. And this would be, of course, very interesting to see how those individual features that were involved in our grammatical complexity metrics, whether they individually are sensitive to the pressures that exist in societies of strangers. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. Elena Sherbakova is a doctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Bioinnovation Institute. Custom Publishing Associate Editor Jackie Oberst chats with Trina Bartoldi about what still needs to be done for women's health research to get equal funding. The views expressed in custom segments are those of the guests and do not reflect policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our podcast listeners, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office, and brought to you by the Bioinnovation Institute, or BII, an international life science incubator in Copenhagen, Denmark. My name is Jackie Oberst, and I'm Associate Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. When one thinks of women's health, one typically thinks of female anatomy and the reproductive system. Yet women are more than the sum of their reproductive parts. Women are more likely than men to become disabled during their lifetime, more likely to be obese, and face a 20% increased risk of developing heart failure or dying within five years of their first severe heart attack. Women also have a greater risk for adverse side effects from medications. This is because women are underrepresented in clinical trials. Historically, the market has said that women's health is too niche for investing. But that is quickly changing thanks to funding from incubators such as BII and people such as my guest, Dr. Trina Bartoldi. She serves as Chief Innovation Officer at BII. Let's get started here. Why does there continue to be a disparity between women and men's health, particularly in underserved areas? I believe that it's a thing that has been underserved for many years. First of all, I think my own generation, I'm plus 50 years old, we haven't really raised our voices. The other thing I think, and let's be honest, there is some male bias in the ecosystem for women's health research. This goes all the way back to the universities with most professors still being men. But there is a, a discrepancy there uh, in terms of it's, it's still being the men calling the shots in terms of where the grant goes and which areas to focus on for research. I even talked to an excellent female professor in Spain recently, and what she told me was she originally did do research within endometriosis, but she could not find branding. So she ended up doing research for diabetes because there's so much more branding going on in that space. 
The other thing is, of course, if you look at the venture capitalist, who is an important part of this ecosystem uh, in order to translate the research into actual startups, we also see that the venture capital community is also highly influenced by male decision-making. I believe it was McKinsey showing a report that 80% of the VCs in the US feel uncomfortable if you mention any sort of female part when you discuss an investment case. And if you look about who has historically been the decision maker in the pharmaceutical industry, that is also men. Yeah, agreed. It's and this is another important part. We see, for instance, in the cardiovascular area, women have sometimes a higher risk for being maldiagnosed than men does. And that's simply because our symptoms is just representing itself quite differently. And there has not been done enough research. Mm -hmm. Um, in our physiology. Historically, we have been considered as small men. So you would take a male dose and just do a female weight ratio. Wow. And then you thought, okay, that's it. Yeah. And how did your, you yourself get involved in this field? By coincidence, somehow. Uh, my career has taken me in many ways. I've been to capitalist myself. I've been in the pharmaceutical industry as well. And then I've also been the CEO of two female medical organizations. And now I'm so lucky and privileged to be part of the Bioinvasion Institute here in Copenhagen, where we have taken a strategic standpoint because we saw the high unmet need, and that's our mission to fulfill high unmet need with people and society. And we saw an extra high unmet need within women's health. So we took a conscious decision to do something extra in this topic. This is why we are now very focused on driving research into actual startups with the ambition of creating more solutions to women. This is why I'm so happy that we, within just one and a half year, has created quite a lot of both new startups. We now have eight uh, startups within our portfolio within Women's Health, as well as creating strong partnerships, both with the Gates Foundation, as well as some pharmaceutical companies and researchers as, at both Oxford and MIT. How will increased funding help close this gap? The Bioinnovation Institute, we also a non-for-profit institute or incubator. Uh, and our job and task is really to create the startup. And what we see is that there's a huge lack of basic research. So what we would need and what I hope to see in the future somehow is that we could get more funding into uh, at least specific areas within women's health. So we can start to drive some change there, because if we don't see strong research coming out, we cannot do any startups. And if we cannot do any startups, the VCs will never see the good cases and the industry will have nothing to develop and put to market. So yeah. how can investors or healthcare key stakeholders in industry, what can they do to get more attention and resources to this field? I would, of course, hope that it could be part of a political scheme. So we start to see here in Europe, at least, we start to see from the UK a bespoke policy uh, around women's health, both in terms of access, but also specific disease areas, such as endometriosis. Uh, we see it from Sweden as well. We have seen it in France. There is a beginning sort of understanding that these female indications, it's not only a female issue, even that should be enough, but it is actually a societal issue because it will hit fertility rate in the community. Now the investors, you know, if you talk about the venture capitalists or the capital funds, the actual decision makers in those funds are the limited partners. So one of my hopes would be also that these limited partners 
would also start to push forward that they require the venture funds to actually allocate a certain amount uh, within women's health like they do already now with the ESG goals or something. So if we then think about the pharmaceutical companies there, I do believe we will see an increasing interest because the existing markets for oncology that we just talked about and diabetes, etc., is pretty crowded. But if we go for women's health, it's basically a white space. There's a huge opportunity there. Uh, and that also means that uh, the payer scheme, etc., the reimbursement scheme, should look much more promising for women's health uh, solutions because the competition is so low. You help sell, well, the research to investors, right? Yeah, because that's the way it has to go, right? It needs to go from research to investors, uh, to industry. And through our network we have established, we help our startups and our researchers to establish this connection both with uh, investors as well as with industry, because we believe it's important that they get the input and the contact as early on as possible to help them drive through the translational phase and then into the more like clinical and then eventually into the clinical development and then to the market, hopefully. So how do you find this research or the scientists? At the Bioinvasion Institute, we actually have a fantastic group of people doing proactive scouting. So we have a very good database tool where we can look up specific disease areas or research areas. And then we approach the researchers directly to hear if they have anything we should discuss. And that other thing that's interesting because of our network and our activities, then the sort of mouth-to-mouth -mouth activity has started because it is a close group also on a global scale. So most of the people working with research within women's health, they will know each other. We see more and more coming to us without us having been proactive first. How do you get the venture capitalists? Uh, no, so first of all, by Innovation Institute here, we do give either a convertible loan or a grant to get going. So we can fund projects from one year up to three years. Um, during that period of time, we have established a really strong VC network or venture capital uh, network. Uh, and we work with a plus 40 of these. Within the women's health, there are also a couple of uh, specialized VCs within women's health that we also work with. And while they are with us, we then start to expose them to our friendly VCs. And the same for the industry, because it's really important that they get the preclinical advice or whatever kind of uh, more pharmaceutical advice early on. So they do the right experiments as early on as possible. So which assay to choose, which animal model to choose, uh, which head-to-head -head comparison to go for, whatever the, the program is about. But we then also pull in our good friends from the industry early on and ask them to help out, to give support and advice to these startups and researchers. Trina, it's been a real pleasure having this opportunity. Thank you for joining me. Our thanks to the Bioinnovation Institute for sponsoring this interview. For researchers interested in becoming entrepreneurs in women's health or other fields, please read up on the Bioinnovation Institute and Science Prize for Innovation, found either at bii.dk or science.org. This podcast has been edited and condensed for length by Chris Connor, fellow podcaster of Life Science Marketing Radio, and me, Jackie Oberst. Thank you for listening. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.